For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. You can always email us your comments, questions, or share your story at podcast at enditforgood.com. Today, we're super thrilled to have author Johan Hari with us. He wrote what has been, for me, the most helpful book that I've read on um, this topic of the drug war. It is the New York Times bestselling book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which is now being adapted into a feature film as well as um, a nonfiction documentary series. Johan also gave one of the most watched TED Talks of all time entitled Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's really fantastic. You can find it on YouTube. So Johan's going to be joining us for a couple of episodes over the next month or two. And today we're going to dive into why did we start criminalizing drugs in the first place? And I actually didn't know prior to reading his book that drug prohibition had a birth date. So I just assumed that drugs like heroin, cocaine had never been legal. But that's not true. And the story of how we began prohibiting drugs was really helpful to me because as I was on my own journey learning about all the harms of the drug war, I still kind of had this nagging thought in the back of my mind saying, but they're illegal for a reason. If it was better for them to be legal, they would be. Surely research supported making them illegal somewhere back there. And, you know, it'd be 10 times worse in the world if they were legal. And then I read the history, and that was kind of one of these final straws of severing my ties with um, supporting drug prohibition. So, Johan, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you, Christina. And I just want to say to, to your listeners, you know, I for my book, I, I went to, I think it's more than 25 countries now, and I met activists all over the world who'd come to the drug, opposing the drug war for different reasons. And you were one of the people I met who I most admire. And I think the work you're doing is incredibly admirable and brave and important. And um, I'm really thrilled to be talking with you again. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate that. So you did a tremendous amount of research, as you said, 25 countries. Um, there's 70 pages of notes at the end of Chasing the Screen that cite all of your resources, you know, all of your interviews. They're all posted online. So you've meticulously documented your research um, for this book, uh, which I so appreciated. And so many people have told me they've appreciated it because they would say, I'm reading this and I'm like, can this really be true? And then I go <laughs> back and, you know, look in the back of the book and they do their own research. I've had multiple people say, I went and did my own research to figure out if this was really true. And it is really true. This is so bizarre. Um, so take us on this journey of how drug prohibition got started. So much of this surprised me as well. You know, as you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to understand this is because we had addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and, and not being able to. And I didn't understand why then, but as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family. And I had always assumed I was never in favor of the most brutal policies towards people with drug problems. But I always assumed somewhere in the past, someone had sat down and thought, OK, um, you know, basically had the kind of debate that we would have now. If you stopped somebody in the street in Jackson, Mississippi, and you said to them, why are drugs banned? They would say totally sensibly, 
well, we don't want kids to use drugs and we don't want um, we don't want people to become addicted. Right. That's something that motivates all of us with whatever you mm. believe about the drug laws. We all agree on those goals. What was kind of shocking was to realize that's not why drugs were banned. Right. Mm. That, that was that was going back and reading over all the debates and doing all the historical research. Those things barely ever came up. Drugs were banned for a very different reason. And, and I, I start chasing the screen with a, a moment. I think when people first read it, they think, why is this in a book about the war on drugs? But I think it's a moment that dramatises the heart of this. In 1939, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked on stage. And she sang for the first time a song called Strange Fruit, which lots of your listeners will know. It's a song about lynching, the idea that, like, the the men who've been murdered have been lynched. Their kind of bodies are hanging from the trees, and that's like a kind of strange fruit. And that night... Billie Holiday got a warning from a man called Harry Anslinger, from the agents of a man called Harry Anslinger, saying, stop singing this song. And that seems like a weird place to start, right? What's that got to do with the war on drugs? It, it tells something really important. So Harry Anslinger was a government bureaucrat who ran the Department of Alcohol Prohibition all through, um, towards the end of alcohol prohibition. Um, and then, obviously, the war on alcohol was a disaster. It completely failed. Prohibition was ended. And, and Harry Anslinger really wanted to keep his government department going. So he, he, he invented the modern war on drugs to, to justify his department's existence. And he really built, he was the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs way before President Nixon or President Reagan or anyone like that. And he really built the war on drugs around two intense hatreds that he had. One was a really intense hatred of African-Americans and Latinos. I mean, he was regarded as an extreme racist in the 1920s. He he used the N-word so often in official police memos that his own senator said he should have to resign. Um, And and a really intense hatred of people with addiction problems uh, because of a bad experience he'd had with a neighbour who had an addiction problem when he was a kid. And to him, Billie Holiday was like a symbol of everything he hated, right? She's a African-American woman singing this song against lynching. Also, she had a very bad addiction problem. When Billie Holiday was a little girl, she had been dreadfully raped. Um, she, The man who, who raped her was sent to prison for a year, and she was actually sent to a reformatory where she was punished for even longer than the rapist, She, where they kind of tormented her. They, they, they said it was her fault at the age of 10 she had been raped. She ran away to be with her mother, but her mother was working in a brothel in New York City, so Billie Holiday starts putting inverted commas around the idea of working, but as a child, she's raped for money night after night after night. And to deal with the pain and the agony of this, she starts using a lot of drugs, initially alcohol, later heroin and other drugs. Um, and, and that night, she receives this warning from Harry Anslinger, and she effectively says, you know, you can't tell me what to say. I'm an American citizen. I can sing my song if I want to sing. And that's the point at which Harry Anslinger resolved to destroy her. Um, and really, it's this pattern of what we do to people with addiction problems um, right up to the present day. So Harry Anslinger hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to follow Billy Holiday around. It'd be kind of obvious. So he employed a guy called Jimmy Fletcher. And Jimmy Fletcher's job was to follow Billy Holiday everywhere she went and document her drug use. Um, Billie Holiday was so amazing, Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life, he felt really guilty about what he did. After 18 months, he has her busted. 
she's put on trial. The trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday. She said that's how it felt. Mm. Uh, she's sent to prison for 18 months. She doesn't sing a word when she's in prison. But the cruelest thing is what happened next. Anslinger's men weren't finished with her. So at that time, to perform in most cities, anywhere where alcohol was served, you needed what was called a cabaret performance license. Anslinger makes sure that, Harry, that, that Billie Holiday is not given this cabaret performance license, that she's, she's deprived of it. One of her friends, uh, another jazz singer, Yolanda Bavan, said to me, What's the cruelest thing you can imagine doing? It's taking away singing from Billie Holiday. This is what we do to people with addiction problems now, right? We, we Instead of making it easier for them to get back to a healthy life, we put obstacles between them and getting back to a normal life. We criminalise them and shame them and give them criminal records and, and punish them. In this context, Billie Holiday, of course, relapses into addiction. She starts using heroin very heavily. Uh, one day she collapses in, in midtown Manhattan, not far from where she'd first sung Strange Fruit. Um, they take her to a hospital. The first hospital won't even take her because she's got an addiction problem. Second hospital takes her, and on the way in, she says to her friend, Maylie Dufty, that Anslinger's men aren't finished with her. She says, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them kill me. She wasn't wrong. Um, in the hospital, she was diagnosed with quite bad liver cancer. Um, and she starts to go into heroin withdrawal. Heroin withdrawal is unpleasant at any time. But when you're very weak, it, it can kill you. So Maylie Dufty managed to make sure the doctors gave her methadone, a kind of heroin substitute. Uh, and she starts to recover. Uh, after 10 days, um, Anslinger's men arrest her on the hospital bed. They, they handcuff her to the hospital bed. They don't let her friends in to see her. They take away her record player. Um, and they cut off the methadone. Uh, or the brother doctors cut off the methadone. And um, she died the next day. As one of her friends told the BBC, she looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. And I think here at the birth of the drug war, we see what the drug war was about all along and, and largely what it is today, right? Um, in, if you look at the early Senate debates about why they were banning drugs, drugs were legal in the United States until the early 20th century, and then more and more of them were banned. If you look at the Senate debates, they're not talking about how do we reduce addiction. They're not talking about how do we protect children. Overwhelmingly, it's a belief that African-Americans and Chinese-Americans and Latinos are, as they put it, like forgetting their place, attacking white people. They need to be put back in their place. And also mm -hmm. this idea that addicts were these like zombies, these monsters, people who were going to come for us. There was Harry Anslinger told people that addiction was like leprosy. It was contagious. They need to be put in, literally, he said they need to be put in leper colonies. They need to be shut off from the rest of the world. They were like typhoid Marys who spread their madness throughout the civilization. So you can see that it's it's a large part of it is about race and a race panic. It's not about figuring out, well, there are real problems around drugs. How do we actually solve them? Um, you can see what it does to people with addiction problems. Far from solving Billie Holiday's problem, it, it led to her death. Um, but you can also see something else. And this really helped me with the people I love who have addiction problems. Because I think anyone listening to this who has someone they loved who's got an addiction problem, if you're honest... I think one of the reasons why this debate is so charged is because it runs through the hearts of all of us, right? We've all got a Harry Anslinger in our head who looks at mm -hmm. people who've got addiction problems and thinks, why isn't someone just stopping you? And then there's another part of us that can see, well, that's not the answer, right? That actually we've tried that. 
it's not working out well for us. The United States has been doing that for 100 years and now has the worst prediction crisis in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and there's an, or another part of us that can see, oh, actually, like with Billie Holiday, the cause of pain, the cause of addiction is deep pain, deep psychological pain, right? That the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And once you understand that, you can see, oh, right, so actually what we need are policies based on love and compassion and helping people to reconnect. And I went to places that have done that, obviously. I'm sure we'll talk about But But mm-hmm. there was one more thing that I took from this story that to me was so important. No matter what they did to her, Billie Holiday never stopped singing that song, right? She would go to you know, the most remote parts of the country where they threw bottles at her when she sang it. She sang her song, right? She never let these people break her. She never let these people stop her. And to me, you know, in this culture, we tell only one heroic story about people with addiction problems, which is that sometimes they stop. And that is indeed a completely heroic story and a massively admirable story. But, you know, Billie Holiday never stopped having an addiction problem. She was still a hero. She overcame the most horrific, horrific, evil childhood abuse, being raped for money by man after man after man as a child, right? She survives that to create some of the most incredible music the world has ever heard that everyday people listen to all over the world and feel stronger and better about life. Um, She's a hero even though she never stopped. Mm. And that to me tells us something about what people with addiction problems are capable of. That's an interesting uh, thing, and it comes up um, regularly with people that I'm talking to, and it is still uh, something that I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about because as as somebody who's not struggled with addiction or has not been directly impacted um, by it myself, kind of this idea of what what is the biggest goal. So before we started prohibiting drugs, people did have addiction problems. They were treated by doctors in clinics and most of them had jobs most of them had family lives they were able to continue on with their lives it would have been better for them if they had not been um you know struggling with this addiction but when it was treated medically they were able to continue to live and to be a contributing member of society and it really challenges kind of that the idea of um I think most of us with the cultural narrative that we have about drug use and addiction and because most of us have only lived during a time where addiction has been criminalized, we have seen it in such a different way. We've seen it manifest itself in such a a different, far more harmful way. Um, And so we've kind of it it seems like we've kind of we're we're we've taken the wrong goal. So we've we've started to think the only way this is better is if people aren't using instead of saying it's actually a lot better, even if they're using, if we can get them in a medical setting with a doctor and have them treated for it. And some of them will be able to stop. Some of them won't, but even the ones that won't can have a productive life under the care of a doctor and, and and that that struggle of you know uh, you talk in the book about you know it is really difficult to sit with complex issues. It's a lot easier to just have a knee jerk reaction and to say, you know, drug use is bad. We need to shut it down. Addiction hurts people. We need to shut it down. Uh, instead of being able to sit with, okay, what? Why are people using drugs? Why are they addicted to them? 
what could actually meet them where they are and move them one step closer and then one step closer to a life that they want to be fully present for. And I, I love that. And I've thought about that so much of just that, the difficulty that, that I still feel on aspects of this over sitting with what is a complex problem. And it, it doesn't go away just because we want it to, or because we just have this kind of, you know, knee jerk um, reaction to it. And that was really helpful. Another thing I um, thought was really helpful too, is just kind of how you talk about in the book, you know, you have this kind of um, anslinger and um, a number of people have come in to me uh, also as they're reading the book because I host book discussions around Mississippi on this book, your book, mm. Chasing the Scream, um, is about how, you know, you talk in the book, you use the the example of, you know, every great surfer still needs a great wave. And, yeah. um, you know, so you have a, an anslinger with with power and with influence, um, but he is still catching the wave culturally at that time of all of this fear over, you know, a, a rapidly shifting culture. Um, and we have, have that even more so in our time of just this, this shifting sands yeah. of how rapidly culture is changing. And it's far easier to kind of just grab hold of something and try to nail something down tight. So we, we feel some, a measure of control rather than being able, you know, to kind of sit with the complexity of, of those problems. So, so take us kind of beyond Anslinger um, for how, how was he able to capitalize to be able to move his own kind of uh, fears and, and hatreds um, into public policy? Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are like, yeah. I don't know, how is that even possible? I mean, can, you know, <laughs> surely there was, you know, a lot, a lot else going on at that time that allowed that to happen. I think this, I think you just gave such a beautiful summary, Christina. And I think one of the things that, again, massively surprised me is that this introduction of the drug war by Anslinger was hugely resisted, right? Like this, this did not come in without a fight. There was an enormous fight over this. Um, so I'll give you an example. And I think you make a really important point, which is that he, you know, he was riding the waves of fear um, in that society. And he was very good at directing the fear in, in pointing the fear in the direction of the solution that he wanted, which ran through his big government bureaucracy. And um, one of the things where I think conservative analysis has a really important point is, you know, government bureaucracies are very good at creating rationales for their continuing existence and um, and they're very good at reshaping public opinion to justify their continuing existence. And I think he, he was very good at that. Part of what he did was using state power to silence his critics. I'll give you an example uh, of uh, an extraordinary man at the birth of the drug war. So in California, there was a doctor called Henry Smith Williams, who was one of the most famous and respected medical doctors of his time. It's a bit like people remember Benjamin Spock or someone like that. Um, and, and, and he had no, so drugs were legal, 
that you know you could go to your local store and you could buy opiates that the most popular way of consuming opiates was something called mrs winslow's soothing syrup which was sold mm. as like a, a problem if you had a a chest infection but it was also used as a kind of opiate to kind of calm your nerves um and and then so he he initially you know he had no sympathy for people with addiction problems he was what was called a social darwinist he basically believed um you know they were just kind of weaklings who wouldn't have survived in a state of nature and should just be left to die right it was very cold and unsympathetic um he had a brother called, called edward swiss williams who treated people with addiction problems um and and ever millions used to treat people with addiction problems when it was legal and there were as you say there were people with addiction problems when it was legal of course um but then anslinger's war begins these drugs are banned and Edward Smith Williams, the brother, sees this enormous transformation in his patients. So before, the vast majority of his patients with addiction problems, um, it drained their life. Their lives were made worse by their addiction, but they had jobs. They were middle class, right? Then the drugs were banned. The drugs don't disappear, obviously. Your listeners will have noticed drugs don't disappear if you ban them. They're transferred from the people who used to control them, licensed businesses, pharmacists, and so on, and doctors, to armed criminal gangs, right? Those armed criminal gangs cause a huge wave of violence for reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about. But they also sell a vastly inferior in product at a vastly higher price. So lots of Edward Smith Williams' patients who've been able to hold down a job when it was legal suddenly have to pay this vastly inflated price. He sees women who previously had worked suddenly being forced into prostitution. He sees men who previously were law-abiding becoming turning to property crime to get, I think, the... I think the figure is literally the, the price of the drugs went up by a hundred times, right? Because, um, you know, if you buy something from a licensed legal business, the licensed business isn't taking a risk. But if, you know, if you're asking someone to break the law to do it, they're risking going to prison. They're going to want a lot more money to take that risk. It's called the risk premium, right? And Edwards with Williams uh, and lots of people, lots of doctors all over the United States were so horrified by this that they decided to just prescribe heroin or prescribe the drug to people, right? Because they didn't want people to go to criminals and become prostitutes or become thieves or whatever. They, they, Because they, there was there was very deliberately written into the law a loophole. You weren't allowed to sell drugs to people, but doctors were allowed to prescribe them. So lots of doctors like Edward Smith-Williams did prescribe them, and it really prevented a kind of massive crisis breaking out. But then Anslinger decides to go after these doctors. There's a huge crackdown. It is the biggest single roundup of doctors by the federal government in American history, right? Over 12,000 doctors are arrested across the country. They sent in people who were pretending to be addicts uh, to ask for this to be prescribed, and they just busted them, arrested them, accused them all of effectively being drug dealers. Um, and Edward Smith Williams, Henry Smith Williams' brother, is put on trial. And Henry Smith Williams, who's been so contemptuous about people with addiction problems, starts to learn about, okay, what's going on here? And he's completely staggered by, by what he's learning, right? He's like, but wait, all of the outcomes are getting much worse, right? Far more addicts were dying, far more uh, people were committing crimes. Um, as he said, it, um, you know, it created the biggest mafia in American history, right? Um, the biggest gift to the mafia in American history. Henry Smith Williams wrote a book at the time. Uh, it's an almost eerily prophetic book. It's called Drug Addicts of Human Beings. He wrote it in the 1930s. 
and he 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 says he's talking about why is this happening right um wh- why are we doing this everyone can see that it's not working that it's a disaster um at one point he even says we won't carry on with this policy for another 50 years because that would be crazy but if we did 50 years from now we'll have a 5 billion dollar smuggling industry in the united states he was right almost to the exact year but mm. what happens is Anslinger destroys these people, right? He writes to their employers. He says these are criminals. They're working with the mafia. In fact, it was Anslinger who was inadvertently helping the mafia uh, by giving them control of one of the biggest trades in the United States. He really wipes out all these people. And it's a big fight. The mayor of Los Angeles stands in front of a heroin prescribing clinic and says, you will not close this down. This does a really good job for the people of Los Angeles. Anslinger has it shut down, state by state by state. They shut it down. Deaths massively go up. And Anslinger just invents a load of government figures, just a load of nonsense. He just claims, oh, things are getting much better. His own department is explaining privately, this is just a lot of nonsense. You know, actually, all the figures show deaths are going massively up. And Anslinger's going around saying, well, addicts are a bunch of typhoid Marys. They're, you know, they're like lepers. We need to shut them away anyway. When they went to shut down the clinic in Portland, Oregon, the doctors there begged them, well, what are we meant to do with these really vulnerable people? Right? What are we meant to do? And one of the agents for Anslinger's department, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, said, take them down to the lake, throw them in. They'll make pretty good fish food. That was the kind of attitude they had. And this was hugely resisted, right? Doctors all over the United States fought back against it. Huge numbers of them were criminalized. There's a big fight. So it's not like Anslinger prevails by having the best evidence or the best outcomes. Everyone agrees deaths went up after these bans um, and deaths go down again in countries that move beyond these bans, like Portugal and Switzerland. I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But but it, it was a combination of riding people's fears um, and and really silencing the opposition, right? Using state power, federal power, to criminalise and silence his critics. Wow, it is so interesting to <clears throat> to see what none of us have ever lived at a time where we treated addiction solely medically. Uh, but to read mm. those numbers of and if people wanted to see all of the things that you are referencing are um, cited in the back of Chasing the Scream, you went through all of Harry Anslinger's writings and notes and you know bureau memos and all of that is it's all there for um people to to see and access um but the statistics of of what addicts were like prior to drug prohibition three-fourths of addicted people had steady jobs 22 percent of them were wealthy only six percent of them were poor um that's the kind of outcome that we had prior to this when doctors like this Smith Williams brothers were treating um, addicted people there was still some addiction just like there is with you know alcohol today and and other things but when it was treated medically the outcomes were just so much better and and we have lost that cultural memory of what that's like to have addiction treated in that way and that people can have far better lives and far bit less stress on their families and this you know this uh the experience of our time of living with someone who is addicted um is so harmful in large part because of the way that we treat it not because of the addiction itself but because of all of the forces that we put onto that person and onto that market and onto the you know keeping them away um from the substance instead of saying 
you know, you, you can access this under the care of a doctor who is going to work with you to try to build more of the life that you can live to deal with the underlying causes of your addiction, to deal with all of the trauma, to, you know, all of those things. It's just, uh, to me, it is such a, that's, that's something that I dream about. That's what I think about when I think about the world that mm. I, I want to live in and the world that I want to leave to my children, to my three boys. Uh, that's the world that I, I want them to live in where people with difficulties and addictions are treated in the way that best helps them return to life and be able to, you know, have jobs and have families and to deal with all of the, you know, the, the pain that a broken world uh, gives to us. And some people have been given uh, far more of that pain um, than others. So thank you so much, Johan, for joining us today. This has been um, really helpful. We've been talking to Johan Hari, who's the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Um, you can access more of Johan's work, including his newest book, Lost Connections, at johanhari.com. That's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. If you have questions, comments, or want to share your story of how drug use, addiction, incarceration, or any aspect of drug prohibition has affected you, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm your host, Christina Dent, with my co-host, Mike Madison, and we continue to invite you to join us as we explore ending our criminal approach to drugs as the best path for reducing harm to people and giving more people an opportunity to live and work and invest in their families and communities. Thanks for joining us. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.